0: Acts chapter 19, continuing our study here through the book of Acts, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book, we're on Paul's third missionary journey, Paul's third missionary journey here, Acts 19, Lord willing, time willing, we're going to do verses 21 through 41 today. So let's do the smart thing and pray, and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, good to be here this morning. Thankful for the time of worship. What a beautiful just late summer morning and just good to get together. Have this time of fellowship and worship, and we pray that your spirit would lead, your spirit would guide, and the focus be you and all that we do and all that we say in your name. Amen. A little bit of background here as we get ready to go into Acts chapter 19. We're at Ephesus. And in Ephesus, there is this very amazing temple that was one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. I was going to get a picture of it for you and put it up there, but the problem is we don't know exactly what it looked like, so everybody has a different interpretation. We do know some of the statistics on it, just to put this in perspective here. It was big, 450 foot by 225 foot, so longer than a football field. It was 60 foot high and had over 100 columns. Once again, one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. The idea behind it was this, depending on your background, be it Greek god or Roman god, that either Zeus or Jupiter sent down a picture of Diana. That's how some people call it. Some people call it Artemis there. Either one sent down this idol, and they built a temple then around it. Now, I was going to show you a picture of what Diana supposedly looked like, and it's absolutely disgusting, so I'm not going to do that. So, if you want to be a heathen and go Google it when you get home, that's between you and the Lord. So... It's just this weird type thing, and this is what they worshipped, and they built this temple around it. And this became, if you will, a little bit of a tourist trap. People would come here to the great temple of Diana, Artemis there, and they would buy these little trinkets. And this is what's going on here in Acts chapter 19. Now, the interesting thing about this is, there's going to be a riot. They're upset at what Paul's saying and doing, because basically, Paul is leading so many people to the Lord. There's such a movement of God that... It's in danger of the temple shutting down. And we'll get to that point here in a little bit. So that's the background of this chapter. So as we mentioned the temple and Diana and Zeus, Jupiter, just to give you a background of what's going on, now let's just jump right into this and see what God has in store for us. Acts 19, verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the Spirit. When he passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem, saying, after I'd been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus. but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. If you look at a map in the back of your Bible, you see him working through his third missionary journey, heading back towards Jerusalem. But the main focus here I want to mention is just this little word, verse 21, when these things were accomplished. That word accomplished. Some of your translations may have a different wording there. Paul accomplished what God had asked him to do. Boy, that really hit me. Because for Paul to accomplish what God asked him to do, that means Paul knew what God had asked him to do. How can you accomplish a task unless you know that's the task that is given to you? So I started thinking about that from a biblical standpoint. Lord, have I accomplished the things you've asked me to do? Well, the first question you have to ask yourself is, what did God ask me to do? I remember hearing a verse one time years ago, and I've never forgot it. 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. We're not going to turn there. It's just a quick little verse. But if you're a note taker, 2 Timothy 4, verse 5. Paul simply writes to Timothy, fulfill your ministry. Great words. Fulfill your ministry. So the question comes up is, have you fulfilled the ministry that God has given you? But before you can answer that, you have to answer the question of what is your ministry? The problem is, as Christians, we confuse what the term ministry means. Some of you say, well, I'm not in the ministry. The word ministry is given to all believers. We've mentioned this before. There's a problem in our lingo. The 21st century church refers to pastors as ministers. And so therefore, if you say you're a minister, it carries this idea that you're the pastor of a church. That's not what the word means. Minister means to serve. So by default, all of you are ministers. We're all ministers of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We're all called to serve. So now, since I'm a minister, what is my ministry? Now, this is where it gets tough. Don't confuse ministry with responsibility. Those are two different things. I have a responsibility to take care of my family, to make sure there's a roof over their head, to make sure they have clothes, to make sure they have food in their stomach. I have a responsibility to make sure my yard is taken care of. I have to mow it. So if I say, honey, I'm going to go minister to the Lord by mowing my yard, that doesn't make any sense. I'm not ministering to the Lord. I'm fulfilling a responsibility. And so what happens is sometimes we look at it as a responsibility as a ministry. I'm going to go to work earn a paycheck, come home, pay the mortgage, pay the bills. I just fulfilled a ministry to my family. No, you fulfilled a responsibility to your family. You have something separate in your life that is a ministry. God has promised this. He comes right out and says in Romans 12, verse 6, that each one of you, as a born-again believer in Christ, has been given a gift of the Spirit. 1 Corinthians talks about this as well in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, that every single person that has been saved has a gift. Now, every now and then, I'll run into someone who comes up to me and says, I don't have a gift of the Spirit. And then I usually say to them very lovingly, smiling, so they know I'm joking. I say, well, then you're not saved. Because the Bible makes it clear. If you are saved, you've been given a gift. So if you say, I don't have a gift, that means you haven't been saved. That's how the system works. This word for gift in the New Testament is the same word as grace. God has given you something that you haven't deserved. Now, are you looking for this gift? See, this is the first question you have to ask is, what is your ministry? Well, have you asked? You know, it's a gift. It's a little bit like Christmas, this idea of all these gifts being around the tree, and you're eagerly anticipating what is yours. So you go to the tree, and you look at every gift, and you look for that one that has your name on it. That's the gift that God has given you. Now, what's the catch when it comes to gifts? Sometimes you don't get what you want. That's part of gifts, You know, we tell the boys all the time, remember, you can make a Christmas list, but it doesn't mean that people are going to get you what is on your list. They will get you the gift that they want you to have because they love you. And we also tell the boys this, when you get a gift, remember to say thank you and say one nice thing about it. We had a Christmas a while ago, and one of my boys came up to me and said, Dad, and I said, yeah. And he goes, I can't think of one nice thing to say about this. We go to our second rule in Christianity, fake it. You know, that's our second rule, you know. It's a gift. Now, some of you may have things that you want to do. You want to be in this area. God may not have given you that gift. And I'm just going to throw a couple out there. You hear this a lot in churches. Worship. I want to be involved in worship. Are you called to? Well, I like to sing. Are you called to? Well, I can play a guitar. Are you called to? Just because you want to doesn't mean that's where God called you to. I see the same thing about teaching or something of leading a study. Well, I want to teach. Is that where the Lord led you? Well, I just want to. You don't get to choose your gift. It's not like God's up there in heaven saying, you know, I really wanted you to do this, but since you put it on your list. No, He gives you a gift of the Spirit that is specific to you that you now have a spiritual ministry. You now have a spiritual responsibility. So the first question is, what is your ministry? If you can't answer that, the next one is, did you ask? Now that's a simple question. Did you ask, Lord, what you called me to do? Truth is, a lot of us don't ask because we don't want to do it. Life's already too busy. The responsibilities in my life make it too busy to carry a spiritual ministry. I have kids, I have a job, I have a house, I have responsibilities. Yes, so I don't have time to do ministry. Then you're completely misunderstanding your priorities in life because it's ministry trumps responsibility. Now, some of your responsibilities can be a ministry. You are responsible, once again, to provide for your family. You're responsible to work that job. You're responsible to do those things. You can go to that job and then say, Lord, as I'm here, I want this to be a ministry. I want this to be an outreach for you. Amen. Work as if working for the Lord, not for man. There are responsibilities that we have at home that we can make a ministry. Boys, we're going to go work on this together and have that time together. But ultimately, there's something where the Lord has called you and said, this is your calling, this is your ministry. First question, do you know what it is? Second question, did you ask? Third question is, do you want to even do it? Sometimes we get the ministry and we pass. What's the big thing about Christmas? Not only getting the gifts, it's returning the gifts. That's become quite commonplace. That's what we sometimes do spiritually. Lord, I really don't like this. This is not where I want to be, so I'll return that gift and ask for another doesn't work that way. Do you want to? Are you willing to sacrifice the time? Or, as we like to say out here a lot, we let life get in the way of living. Life has gotten so busy, I don't have the time to have a ministry because I have too many responsibilities. Then we need to stop and think about that. And the last question that we ask is Did you decide the gift yourself? Have you talked yourself into a ministry that you wanted? That maybe the Lord hadn't called you, but you chose that ministry yourself. Paul accomplished, verse 21, the task that was given to him. How could he accomplish it? because he knew what God had called him to do. So back to this idea of gifts and ministry, let's talk about this a little bit. Can you go to Romans 12? Romans 12, please. Because a lot of times, we run these words around of gifts, ministry, Well, what are my choices? Well, there's a couple of different lists in the Bible. We're going to go to the Romans 12 list. There are what I call the title gifts of apostles, pastors, teachers, evangelists, etc. Those are mentioned. But what we have here in Romans 12 is really more of just day-to-day application ministry. Let's go through these. This is what I think you do. I think you read through it and you say, Lord, is this where you called me? And I tell you, take some time this week. Pray through this list and say, Lord, is this where you want me? Romans 12, verse 6. I'm going to read out the New Living Translation. Normally we do New King James, but I like the way the New Living reads it here, so just it's going to read a little different. It says in verse 6 of Romans 12, In His grace, God has given us different gifts for doing certain things well. That's exactly what it is. His grace has given us a gift. What is your gift? Let's see the choices here. So if God has given you the ability to prophesy, speak out with as much faith as God has given you. First gift mentioned is prophecy. Now the problem is when we think of prophecy, we normally think of foretelling of future events. That's true, but also prophecy means to speak forth for God. Is that your gift? Do you just like talking about the Lord, what the Lord has done, what the Lord is doing? Do you just like that? Maybe at work, you just love lunchtime. Not because it's lunchtime, because you've got 50 people in this room, and you're just like, Lord, I want to talk about you. I just want to tell people about what you've done. I want to tell people about what you're doing. I just want to prophesy about you. Speak of the Lord. That may be your gift. Next one, after prophecy. Verse 7, if your gift is serving others, serve them well. Maybe your gift is service. You see a need and you just want to do it. Hey, that yard needs mowed at church. I'll take care of it. Hey, my neighbor's yard needs mowed. You know what? She's a widow. I'll just go over there and take care of it. Hey, they're doing this service project. I want to be there. You may not be the person to be changing diapers in the nursery. You may not be the person being standing up here teaching. But by golly, you're not afraid to get your hands dirty to get things done. Service. What an underrated gift. That's a lovely gift, a lovely gift. The gift of service, being willing to serve. Next one, verse 8 if your gift is to encourage, excuse me, verse 7 if you're a teacher, teach well. Maybe that's your passion, is seeing people grow in their walks and relationship with Christ. I tell you, I love. Teaching. This is my favorite time of the week of just getting up. Let's talk about the Lord. Let's encourage each other. Let's go deeper in our walks and relationships with Jesus Christ. Very simply put, if you're not saved, we want to see you saved. If you are saved, we want to see you go deeper in your relationship with Jesus. Teaching. Love that. Verse eight. If your gift is to encourage others, be encouraging. That's a gift. That is, you are the person that comes into a room of hundreds of people and your mind automatically goes to that person sitting by themselves. I don't even know them. I don't know what's going on, but I want to go over and say hi to them. You see that person that just doesn't look right. They're sad. They're bothered. Something's frustrating them. And it's just in your heart. I need to pray for them. I, I need to call them. I need to write them a quick note. You're the person that goes to the church directory and says, I haven't seen so-and-so in a while. I just want to drop them a quick card to encourage them. What a great gift. The gift of encouragement in difficult times. If it's giving, give generously. Giving. You're willing to give of your time, your energy, your resources. You don't care what's going on today. If you need something, I'm willing to do it. I'll give my time. Sure, I was planning on coming and doing this instead, but you need that done. Let me give of myself. I'm willing to give generously because that's the example that Christ has given us. If God has given you leadership ability, take the responsibility seriously. The gift of leadership. That's a gift where you say, you know what? That needs to be done. I'll make sure it gets done. we got a couple personalities out here at church that have the gift of leadership. We need something done, we put them in charge of it. They get it done. What a beautiful gift that that is. Next one here. If you have a gift for showing kindness to others, do it gladly. Now you would think kindness would be easy for us as Christians, wouldn't you? I mean, it's one of the fruits of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness. But you know what we do as believers? When we see a fellow Christian get themselves into a bit of a trap in life, we have a tendency to turn our back. Kindness is basically saying, how I translate it in my mind, I'm willing to get my hands dirty. That's a messy situation. There's a lot of anger, a lot of bitterness, a lot of frustration, and a lot of hurt. It'd be really easy for me just to pretend and not know about it. It'd be really easy for me just to say from a distance, I'll pray for you. Kindness says, I want to get involved in that person's life and help them and bless them, encourage them. I want that kindness to say, I know they're at a rough, dark, dark spot in life. I want to be there to show kindness to them in that difficult time. What's your ministry? If you read through this and you're like, I don't know. Take some time this week. Take some time this week. It's not what you want It's what the Lord has in store for you. It's a gift. I asked the boys this. I think it was just yesterday or Friday. I can't remember. I was working on the lesson. I said, guys, what's your ministry? And most of the boys came back and said, "Um, tell other people about God. That's good. That's really not a ministry. That's just a spiritual responsibility we have no matter what we're doing. Because it almost makes it sound like it's my responsibility to tell others about God. It's almost like I can say, well, that's your responsibility. Good. I don't have to worry about it then. You go be the evangelist. I'll just stay here. We're all called to tell people about God. But what does the Lord want you to do? Judah, our secondborn, he said, I don't know. That's a good, honest answer. The other boy said some stuff. Elias, our firstborn, says, I think my calling is to tell people what to do. <laughs> now, you can't create your own calling. I'm just telling you that right now. That is a firstborn. I, think I, I said, that's not a biblical calling, is to tell people what to do. Ask yourself these questions. What is my ministry? If you don't know what your ministry is, ask the Lord, what have you called me to do? Then ask yourself, do I really want to do it? I mean, am I really willing to sacrifice my time to say I see the spiritual importance of what God has called me? And lastly, did you decide it yourself or did you let the Lord lead and guide you? Remember, part of a mature believer's walk with the Lord is ministry, service. It's not a have to, it's a want to. A lot of times I see believers... Very active in many things, but not in ministry, not in service. And there's this little idea I've been thinking about. What it really comes down to is, we like to be part-time believers, but want full-time benefits. It doesn't work that way. Lord, I just want to give you this part-time thing. You know I love you, you know you love me, and life's really busy right now, so part-time I'll serve you. But I want the full-time benefits of grace and peace and etc. It doesn't work that way. Lord, I want to be everything I can for you. And I look back here at Paul, Paul accomplished these things, purposed in the Spirit. He knew where the Lord had called him, he went where the Lord had called him, and he was obedient to that. So, let's see what happens next now. Let's continue on in our study here. Verse 23, about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. We're going to stop right there. It's going to take us a few days to get through this. This idea of the way, we have to hit this. This comes from this idea of Jesus in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. Now, that is such a simple point. But that is being... Well, that's quietly being blurred in Christianity. Think about this. We call ourselves Christians, which means followers of Christ... So if I'm a Christian, that means I follow Christ, and Christ told me that he's the only way to get to heaven. But yet I run into people who claim to be Christians that believe that there's multiple ways to get to heaven. That makes absolutely no sense to me. How can you be a Christian who's following Christ, who said that he's the only way to get to heaven, but then believe there's other paths? It doesn't work that way. We believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven. The only one mediator between God and man. That's a real struggle for people. A real struggle. Because in this world we live in, we live in this world of different paths. If I picked a town and said, hey, how do you get to Napoleon? Some of you would say, well, you could take 109, go to Route 6. Some of you would say, nah, I'd rather go 108. Some of you would say, well, I'm going to go 109 to 281 to 108. There's numerous ways to get to Napoleon. It doesn't work that way spiritually. There's one way to get to heaven, and that's through Christ and Christ alone. And that really bothers people. I've shared this story with you before. I'll repeat it real quick. I remember when I was in college, and I had a humanities professor that really just liked to uh, rub people the wrong way. And he was not a Christian. He made that very, very clear. So he put up a picture one time, and the picture said this, the only mistake that God ever made was when she created man first. And he just wanted to pick and rub. And so he put this up, the only mistake that God ever made was when she created man first. He said, does anybody have a problem with this? So no one, I raised my hand. I have a problem with this, you know. He said, Why? And I said, well, you know, as a Christian, I don't, and he interrupted me, as a Christian, so you believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven? I said, yeah. He goes, do you realize what you just did? By believing that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, he goes, that means of the 5 billion people in the world, you automatically just said, you think 4 billion of them are going to hell. So you're telling me right now, he goes, all these Hindus, all these Muslims, all these Buddhists, etc., you believe they're all going to hell. I mean, this guy was just picking. So you're at this moment, and you stop and you say, yeah, that's what I believe. And then he starts going on, and there was this other gal in class, I don't remember her name, I don't remember anything, but she raised her hand and she said, I agree with him, meaning me. And I really at that moment saw the importance of why Jesus sent people out two by two. And I tell you, I can't wait to get to heaven to tell that gal, thank you. Because having one other person just stop and say, I agree, it's like, yes, Lord, thank you. And it's just the world we live in that as soon as a Christian, as soon as you claim to be a Christian, and you believe, according to verse 23, the way, you are saying that anybody who does not accept Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior is not going to heaven. That's a very powerful word there, the way. Verse 24, for a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith, who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Real quick, those are just little little trinkety gifts. This temple was a tourist trap in some ways. People would show up and they would say, Hey, did you like your visit to the temple of Diana? Yes, I did. Well, you know what? For just a few shekels, you can have this great little picture of Diana, this little silver thing, take it home. It was a tourist trap. That's why they made their money. Verse 25, he called them together with the workers of similar occupation and said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see in here that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods who are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised, and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. Guys, we're going to lose our job, and not only lose our job, we're going to lose this whole temple. Now, a couple points on this. Did you catch in verse 26 and 27? Paul, through the message of Christ, is turning people away to the true God, away from these false gods. Verse 27, their danger is that the temple may be destroyed and her magnificence of a God may be destroyed. What type of God is it that can be destroyed? That just blows my mind. We have to defend our God because if we don't defend our God, our God will be destroyed. Then you have a pretty weak God. That's the beauty of our God. Our God's not threatened. It's not that we have to be careful that our God's going to be defeated. No. He's Jehovah. He's the creator of the universe. Their God... Oh, guys, we got to be careful. We're going to lose our God. Can you imagine losing your God? That sounds like a very serious thing. They're going to be defeated here. So he basically says, hey, we have to do something about this. Now, here's the point I want to make. And as I make this point, don't get angry at me, okay? And if you disagree with me, talk to me about it afterwards because this sometimes rubs people the wrong way. Let me build this point up a little bit. This temple is about to be shut down, potentially be destroyed because no one's going to go anymore because so many people are being turned to the message of salvation through Paul that there's a danger of this temple being done with. And we know that Paul did not attack this God, Diana herself, because look at verse 37, jump ahead a little bit. Look at the accusation they bring against Paul. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. He says right there, these guys aren't blaspheming our God. What Paul is just doing is just saying there is one God, and that God is God, who is also Jesus Christ. That's his message. So the way they're taking this temple down is by just proclaiming The truth of Jesus Christ. Now here's my point. I think a lot of times as Christians, the way we deal with awful things, sinful things, is we attack that thing rather than the heart that is attracted to it. So what happens is this. We live in this world where we'll say, okay, let's make all these things illegal. So we're going to take away the drinking. We're going to take away the drugs. We're going to take away the pornography. We're going to take away all this stuff. It it, it can't even exist anymore. Which I would say amen to that. That sounds great. Okay, fine. But the heart has not been changed in Christ. So the heart is still going to be attracted to those type of things. The way all those awful things are shut down is by people coming to know Christ. And as they come to know Christ, the desire to do those things starts to disappear. Problem is we're trying to legislate morality. You can't legislate morality because the heart will still want it. If you want those awful things to be ended, there has to be a regeneration in the heart where the person stops and says, I no longer desire it. There had to be a time where this guy that used to go to the temple of Diana would stop and say, You know what? This message that Paul keeps preaching, I don't want to go to the temple anymore. I just don't want to go anymore. You know, and this is the point is that eventually you reach this point where you stop and you say, I don't want it. I don't want it anymore. I can remember when I first got saved. There was some stuff that I, I really liked and I wanted to hang on to. And I can remember talking to uh, um, Kelly. And I remember talking to her and Kelly would say something to the fact of um, I would say, I'm not going to let go of this. I want to hang on to this. And I remember she said something that really hit me and I've never forgot it now 20 years later. She said, the longer you walk with Christ, the more those things are going to become distasteful to you. And I didn't believe it. But a few months after walking with the Lord, guess what? I didn't want those things anymore. See, as you grow and walk in the Lord, those things that used to be so much fun and your life used to revolve around, eventually you stop and say as a born-again believer, I don't want it. I I don't want to go get wasted at the bars anymore. I don't want to go to those websites on the web anymore. I don't want to go to the temple anymore. And eventually those things no longer have an interest to you. There may be a temptation because we're flesh, but eventually you say, I don't want that. And so if we really want to see the nation changed... The nation's going to be changed by more and more people coming to know Christ as their Lord and Savior. I remember a pastor saying this, and at first glance, I hope it doesn't come across as offensive, he said the problem with some Christians is the Christians are so focused on saving America. He goes, I'm not in the business of saving America. He goes, I'm in the business of saving Americans. Because as you save Americans... Then you have people that have a different perspective on where the nation should be and where we should be going, and then those people then next to are spreading that message of truth in the gospel, and then the nation gets saved. Sometimes I think we work backwards. That's an awful horrible thing. Let's shut it down. Okay, we shut that down. The hearts are not regenerated. The people still want it. They'll go find it someplace else. Let's see the hearts regenerated in Christ, and then you see these things no longer carrying that attraction. What was going to shut the temple down? people knowing about Jesus. That's what was going to shut it down. Verse 28, Now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out, saying, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the altar with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Then some of the officials of Asia, who were his friends, sent to him, pleading that he would not venture into the theater. Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. I think verse 32 is the most accurate description of the world that we live in today. Look at verse 32: Some therefore cried one thing, and some another, for the assembly was confused, and most of them did not know why they had come together. Is that a picture of the world? I mean, have you not ever seen that when you're in this group of people and there's this big group of people, you don't know what's going on, so you get on the edge and you ask the person, Freddie, what's going on? They're like, I don't know, there's something going on. Then people show up behind you and they're like, what's going on? You say, I don't know, there's something going on. We're just here. Just because we're excited. There's a big group of people, there's got to be something going on. Verse 32, why are we screaming? I don't know, let's just scream. Why is everybody here? I don't know, let's just come together. Is this what the world does? You know, sometimes you see those pictures on the news uh, of these riots and all this stuff going on, and there's these people that are actively yelling and screaming and throwing things. And then if you look, there's these people in the background kind of like just chilling out. You know, it's like, I think they're just there. What's going on? This is the world. We're crying one thing. Somebody's crying another thing. But you know what? Basically, verse 32, we're completely confused. I read verse 32, and it reminds me of what Paul wrote in Corinthians. God is not a God of confusion. So when I see confusion... That's not of the Lord. So when a believer comes to me and the first thing they say to me is, Ah, pastor, I'm so confused. That's not of the Lord. That is not of the Lord. Because God is not a God of confusion. He's a God of peace. He's got a plan for you. He will reveal that to you. Verse 33, And they drew Alexander out of the multitude. The Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand and wanted to make his defense to the people. But when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, Great is Diana of the Ephesians. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, Men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of the Ephesians is the temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Right there, this guy is actually saying, Paul did not attack Diana. He was just presenting the truth of Jesus. Verse 38, Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open. There are proconsuls. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called into question for today's uproar, there being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. When he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. So the guy gets up there and basically says, Guys, we don't have a reason to get it together. If you have a problem with this, Paul, take it to the courts. Don't do this. So therefore, this riot, if you will, is kind of pushed off to the side. Now, let's make a couple points here as we get ready to close. I see a couple things here. First off, I see Paul, not backing down. There's this riot going on, and what's he want to do in verse thirty? He wants to get right in there to it. There's a boldness, there's a strength to say, I'm willing to take a stand for the Lord. Simple question. Are we willing to take that same stand for the Lord? Are we willing to take that stand for truth? It goes back to what we said in verse 23, this idea of the way. If I really believe that Jesus is the only way to get to heaven, then I'm willing to take that stand when I see that way being threatened. Because I want to make sure the truth is proclaimed. We also see Paul. How is Paul going to change the world? One soul at a time through Christ. That does not mean that you're not afraid to call sin, sin. The Bible says that if you see the works of darkness, we're supposed to expose them. But at the same time, if I really want to see those works of darkness shut down, it's going to come through people's hearts, coming to know Christ. And as they come to know Christ, they're going to want to say, I don't want that anymore. I don't want that anymore. I want things to be different. And my life, and not only my life, my community, not only my community, my state, my nation, and my world. Because I want things to be different. And our first point, Paul could accomplish what was asked of him in verse 21. Because he was in the spirit, he knew what the Lord had asked him to do. Our final questions to remind you of, what is your ministry? First question. Next question is, if you don't know what your ministry is, did you ask? I mean, are you willing to say, Lord, I'm willing to put aside my time and responsibilities to have a ministry of service to you? Some of us may not be willing to do that. Let's just be honest. But Lord, am I willing to put aside my time and responsibilities to say, I want the ministry that you have for me. I don't want to be a part-time Christian wanting full-time benefits. I want everything you have for me. And the third question is, did you decide that ministry yourself? Or is that what the Lord laid on your heart? Remember, you don't get to pick your Christmas gift as much as you like. Sometimes your aunt gets you socks. There's nothing you can do about that. Take the gift that God has given you and realize that that is the best gift. Gift that the Lord can and will give you, and that's the blessing of this. Marvin, come forward here for the final.